welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Such an honor to be with you today. Um, I love Darren. I met him a number of years ago, and uh, I thought this is a guy I would love to be friends with for the rest of my life. And uh, we've connected throughout uh, the last number of years here and there. Every time we do, I leave so encouraged, so built up, so full of faith for what God's doing. I love the story of the garden. And of course, I've heard about your church for years as well. I have family in the area as well as uh, have lots of friends with different movements and ministries. And everybody I talk to loves the garden. Everybody I talk to loves and reveres this community. So it is such an honor to get a little bit of time with you guys this morning after hearing about you for so many years and uh, hearing about the incredible things God's doing in you guys and through you guys. I count it a great privilege to be with you. So um, I'm excited to see where we go over these next minutes ahead of us. Um, As Darren said, I wish my whole family was with me. We have six children, which is a lot if you didn't know. And uh, and, uh, and we also have a seventh little foster buddy right now. So we are like a traveling circus. People just, you know, buy, buy tickets and watch our family. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit of chaos and a lot of fun. And um, my kids are 16 down to two uh, eight-year-olds. And uh, one adopted, one biological. Four of my kids are biological. Two of my kids are adopted. And uh, it is one of the greatest privileges of my life is family. I wish they could all be here, but uh, they're back in Kona where we live and work with Youth with a Mission and uh, spent the last 20-some years um, working with YWAM and uh, around the world globally, but largely also focused on America and America's breakthrough, what God's doing in America right now, and seeing a whole generation of young people get gripped with the dream of the Great Commission. This is a passion we have that Jesus' final command would be one of our greatest privileges, that we would be talking about the Great Commission in every family, every living room, every leadership team, every boardroom, that if we are believers, the Great Commission is ours, and uh, that it would be put into the center of the conversation. We've had too many conversations about the color of the carpet or the uh, power of the sound system. We need to have more conversations about the Great Commission. More conversations about Jesus who is seeking and saving the lost from the moment he came to now through us to the man who left the 99 to find the one God is wanting to grip the church in this hour with passion, zeal, and joy. Everyone say joy. The joy and the privilege of the Great Commission. I'm telling you, there are way too many bored Christians out there who have not discovered the joy of the Great Commission, the privilege that we have the honor of being Jesus to those around us. There is no greater honor, there is no greater joy than to see someone encounter the love of God. And uh, I think in the shakings of the last year and a half, one of the greatest redemptions is going to be is that God is stripping away the things that don't matter. He is ending the irrelevant conversations we've had for far too long. He is turning our eyes from worthless things and worthless arguments to what actually matters. And he is setting our eyes on the things of eternity. He's setting our eyes on the great privilege of the hour that we live in. And I think there is so much good in the midst of all of the shaking that has occurred in the last year and a half. And I think out of it is coming a beautiful, beautiful bride that is head over heels in love with Jesus and willing to go anywhere he says and do anything he would ask us. And I think the garden is very much a community that is like that. 
This morning, I'd like to talk a little bit about a global perspective, talk a little bit more about the Great Commission and where we are today, both the uh, incredible testimony of what's happening that is unprecedented in our hour, as well as the incredible need that still exists all around us. And I want to say this is that so much of our lives is based on our perspective. So much of our action in life is based on perspective. Our posture in life is based on our perspective. And this morning, my heart would be is that we would have a little bit of a perspective shift wherever we need to have it that would then determine our posture and it would determine our actions. Maybe case in point, if a house was on fire, it would drastically determine your posture, right? If your house is blazing and on fire, flames shooting out your window, you're most likely not going to run to the fridge and get a snack, right? The urgency of a house on fire drastically changes your posture, right? And the same time it changes your posture, it also drastically determines your actions, right? You are not going to go take a nap if your house is on fire. You're not going to be like, I hope the kids are okay. You're going to find out where the kids are, right? You're not going to sit down probably and determine that that's a great time to finish your favorite Netflix series, right? You're not going to care about the TV. You're going to care about what's most precious in that moment, right? You're going to value what's most important in life when the house is on fire, and you're going to do everything you can to get out of that house. And I want to say at a perspective level, friends, the house is on fire. The house is on fire. You don't have to read too many headlines in America right now to know that the house is blazing right now. And it is so important not that we give in to fear, not that we give in to anxiety, not that we give in to worry, but that we would change our posture and we would change our practices because the house is burning down all around us. And the same, that urgency ought to determine our perspective. It ought to determine our posture and it, might, it ought to determine our actions. At the same time as this urgency is going on around us, so is this remarkable opportunity around us. Not just driven by a sense of urgency, we also ought to be driven by a sense of opportunity. Guys, we have never lived in a greater vacuum of spiritual leadership than right now. That is an opportunity. We have never seen a generation like Gen Z that is so longing for substance, so desiring for something to live for, looking for something to die for. This is a generation that is cause-driven, and friends, we have the greatest cause in all of human history. There is an opportunity in front of us for a generation with giant open hearts, open minds, and the question will be, who determines their future? What cause will grip this next generation? This is an opportunity, my friends. That opportunity ought to also drive our posture. It ought to drive our actions. And lastly, where we're gonna end today is I also believe that in the midst of the urgency, in the midst of the opportunity, is that Jesus is leading us back to the beautiful, wonderful, joyful commands of Scripture. The greatest book that has ever been written, my friends. The source of truth and life, right? Living our lives on the foundation of Scripture. And this urgency drives us, this opportunity drives us, but at the core of it, obedience drives us. The heart of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the commands of Scripture, the invitation into a life of wholehearted, sold-out, surrendered obedience to Jesus. Guys, I believe we're heading into a day where wholehearted Christianity would be the only Christianity. 
When you read your Bible, there's not another version. When you look back in certain areas of history, there's no such thing as a Christianity that isn't a wholehearted Christianity. We have settled for a Christianity that at times is more safe than wholehearted, but I believe that is being shaken and that is dying all around us. And we are looking into a day where Christianity is wholehearted Christianity. Obedience is going to drive us into this change posture, into this change perspective, into these changed actions. This is where I believe we're heading. I want to give you a little bit of a picture of what's happening to drive the urgency, the opportunity, and the obedience. We live in the most exciting hour of history. I think many of you um, and many of us, it's easy to read headlines today and go, my gosh, I don't know about exciting, maybe exciting in a, in a uh, adrenaline way, but exciting in a positive way. I don't know, it's insanity right now. But there is so much going on that will never show up on BBC or Fox or CNN or CBS or whatever it may be. If we're looking to mass media for our report on the kingdom, we will never find it, right? But there is another report. God is moving all over the earth in unprecedented ways right now. If you just said, you know, a number of years ago that the fastest growing church in the world would be in Iran, most of us would have said that is absolutely impossible. But today, that's the truth. The fastest growing church on the earth is in the nation of Iran. For the first time in human history, nations like Afghanistan are having real full-blown people movements. The statistic today in Indonesia is that every 20 seconds, an Indonesian Muslim is turning to Jesus. These are unprecedented hours. You wake up in the morning right now, you're the first generation in human history to wake up that in every geopolitical nation on earth, there are sold out, wholehearted followers of Jesus. We're the first generation in human history to wake up where every single geopolitical nation has sold out believers. I have the privilege of working with Lauren Cunningham, the founder of YWAM. He's been to every nation on earth himself, sharing the gospel, meeting with believers. And uh, it's so fun to sit with him because sometimes people will talk about missions and they'll say something like, there's no known believers in Libya. And Lauren will go, well, I snuck into Libya in the trunk of a car. And I met with a number of underground churches and they're doing just fine. And then someone will say, there's no known believers in the Maldives. And Lauren will be like, I was there in 1978. It was a Wednesday I arrived. And I led 20 of the Lord myself and they're doing just fine. And this is true of every nation on earth for the first time in human history, there are sold out on fire worshipers of Jesus. In our day, right now, in the midst of our headlines, God is moving all over the earth, right? About 15 years ago, a group of uh, missiologists came together to define where are the most needy places on the earth in terms of the gospel. They determined and they, they coined a phrase called unengaged, unreached people groups. These were people groups where not a single known believer was known, not nations, but people groups. Not a single known missionary, not a single known church, not a single known indigenous uh, believer. This number 15 years ago was about 3,100 unengaged people groups. Those people groups might have ranged from 100,000 people to 50,000 to maybe 500, lots of different populations. But in the last 15 years, through collaboration, partnership, and unity in the missions world at an unprecedented level, that number has gone from 3,100 people groups that were still unengaged after 2,000 years of salvation history. And in 15 years, that number is down to 170. 170. Now, the beauty of it, please, you gotta know, we are looking at real biblical 
finish lines right now. Matthew chapter 24, this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed among all ethnos, all language groups, and then the end shall come, right? Those 170 groups, they have not yet been engaged. The other, however many that would be, 3,100 minus 170, they've all been engaged in the last 15 years. Tens of thousands of new churches, hundreds of thousands of new indigenous believers, and this thing is spreading across the earth, right? Those 170 people groups, though, unengaged, they are still unengaged, but for the first time in human history, they are named and they are adopted, and for the first time in history, an actual entity, an organization, a church like the Garden or a missions organization has adopted them and is working to reach them in the next 10 years minimally the last unengaged people group on the earth will be engaged for the first time in human history. Friends, we are watching our day play out in the scriptures. Literally in the next 10 years, this will happen. Not only that, today there are 1,600 languages on the earth that still don't have a single page of scripture. They don't have the gospel in their heart language. How many believe that when Jesus lived on the earth, his intent and his passion was that the message that he carried, lived, died, and was resurrected would be spoken, declared, prophesied, and proclaimed in every heart language on the earth? How many know he wasn't just thinking about English? He wasn't just thinking about Spanish. He was not just thinking about Arabic. How many know he cares about the 500 people on a remote South Pacific island who speak one language on that island, right? He cares about them as much as the largest urban center on the earth. There are 1,600 languages still without a page of scripture, again, because of unity, collaboration, and the amazing hour that we live in. By the year 2035, we will begin the translation of the last language on earth to not yet have the scriptures. Friends, this is right in front of us. This is right in front of us. You could easily say in the next 10 to 15 years, the last remaining people groups on earth will be engaged with the gospel. And the last 15, next 15 years, the last remaining language on earth for the first time in history will have the Bible, the gospel in their heart language. In the next 15 years. This is a reason to have a little joy, my friends. This is a reason to get out of bed in the morning and go, the enemy does not have the victory in this generation. He does not have the victory in America. He does not have the victory in any nation on the earth. Jesus is winning this deal. He does not know how to lose. He's never lost. He will not lose. The end is his victory, and our day is no exception to that. The headlines might try and tell us otherwise, but friends, please look to heaven for your headlines. Please look to the scriptures for your headlines, and you will realize we are in one of the most exciting hours of all of human history. At the same time, this is the opportunity in front of us. At the same time, there is great urgency and great opportunity. There are still 7,000 remaining unreached people groups. That means less than 2% Christian. They lack the resources to continue to grow in the indigenous church. That's 7,000 people groups totaling about 3.2 billion people on the earth. Some large percentage, let's say 2 billion, have never one time heard the name of Jesus. Tonight, when we go to bed with a church on almost every corner in town, with numerous Bibles and numerous translations and numerous, you know, uh, versions of it on our shelves and on our phones, we will go to bed 
with the gospel surrounding us in many ways, with the teachings of Jesus all around us, with unlimited resources at our fingertips to going deeper in God, and two to two and a half billion people on earth will go to bed tonight never one time having heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard his name. They don't know he came once, much less that he's coming again. That is the great need that's in front of us. There's an urgency there. Today, 1% of all missions giving is going to reach the 3.2 billion people on the earth. Today, 3% of the entire missions world is actually working among the unreached. That exact number is 12,000 missionaries working to reach 3.2 billion people on the earth right now. Now, if Jesus is the greatest strategist who ever lived, if Jesus is the wisest leader who's ever lived, if Jesus was the greatest leader who has ever lived, I don't think he would have led in a fashion that goes, I've got an idea. I'm gonna put millions of Christians in a few countries and I'm gonna put next to none in a bunch of other countries. And I'm gonna tell the millions, stay in your own country, it's safer. And I'm gonna tell just a few, go out there and risk your life and give it all and try and reach you know, 100,000 each or 400,000 each, which is the statistic of missionaries per Muslims on the earth right now. One for every 400,000. Now, no strategist would look at that and go, that's a good idea, but that's our current reality. Today in America, this year, last year, whatever you wanna say, a hundred times more money was embezzled by pastors than was given to reach the unreached around the world. In America, 2018, when a study was done, America spent more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than they did on reaching the 3.2 billion people that are still waiting for the gospel. This is part of the urgency that's around us. Barna just did a, a massive uh, survey across the American church with the IMB. And in that survey, they did a uh, survey, a question was how many people in the American church know what the Great Commission is? 17% of American Christians know what the Great Commission is and where it's in the Bible. 17%, 17 out of 100 believers in every church in America know what the Great Commission means as a phrase and where it would even be in the scriptures. The rest have maybe heard of it and don't know where it is or what it means. And a huge percentage, I think it was 51%, have never heard the Great Commission, don't even know that it is a Christian or a somewhat you know, biblical term from the teachings of scripture. That's part of the urgency of the hour that we're in right now. So not only is there great opportunity, my friends, but there is great urgency all around us. And I think that in this hour of shaking where our priorities are being set, uh, shifted, they're, they're coming back to scriptural priorities, coming back to what really matters in life. When things like global pandemics and social unrest and political chaos hit, like we have experienced in the last year and a half, we tend to prioritize what really matters in life. Why the house is on fire? What's really of value? What really matters? If I've got a few minutes to get out of this thing before it falls down, what am I most going to prioritize in life? That urgency is driving us to make what's valuable truly valuable, to prioritize what really matters to God. If Jesus looked at the earth today and he looked at nations or regions, even of America, and he, and he looked through the lens of his calling, which was to seek and save the lost, if he looked through the lens of his parables, which is I leave the 99 to find the one, then how different might he view the geography and the landscape of our nations today? 
He would look at them based on their need, their oneness, the one, not the 99. He would look at them based on their unreachedness. And how many you know Jesus would be going where the most people still hear the good news of Jesus? Even in America, God is wanting to change our thinking from where can we plant a church because of the demographics, because of the income level, because of the number of believers that might shift away from that church and join our church to change our perspective to go, where is the church not? Because that's where we're called. Come on, friends, where is the hardest neighborhood? Because that's where we're called. Where is the hardest city? Because that's where we're called. Not where it's easy, where they're longing for the good news of Jesus. Not where there's tons of other believers because that would be good and we could gather and we could have a great time together and great worship services. But a people who would look at the earth and go, where have we not yet gone? That's where we're called. Apostolic ambition is going to hit the church much like it did Paul. At the end of Romans chapter 15, when he writes to the church of Rome, he's never visited them, but he's heard about them. This great growing church in Rome. He says, I long to visit you. He says, but I was hindered from coming to see you. And you read throughout the rest of that text and you go, what hindered Paul from going to Rome? Well, you realize Rome had great small groups. Rome had a good church. Rome had good leaders. Rome had people who were teaching well. Rome had a flourishing, growing church. And he goes, I was hindered from coming to you. Why? Because you had what you needed. He goes, but there's a whole region called Turkey that has never heard the good news of Jesus. So as much as I wanted to come to Rome, I was driven by my ambition to take the gospel where it had never been before. So I was unable to come see you. And then he says, but guess what? I'm finally coming. This is the book of Romans. So you can take an offering and send me to Spain because they've never heard the gospel before. To be driven by a sense of urgency, by opportunity and by the commands of Jesus. Let's go to the scriptures further on this. Matthew chapter nine. This is the perspective shift. You guys still okay? Okay. Remember the joy of the invitation of a life laid down, wholehearted obedience. Here we go. Matthew chapter nine, perspective shift. This is my hope is that a little bit of our perspective would change this morning. That's it. Just a little bit. Just a five-degree shift, but you can't imagine what a five-degree shift in perspective does to posture and what it does to action. And that's what we're aiming for today. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. This, in a way, is kind of a day in the life of Jesus. It's a real moment, and he says some real sentences that were really captured in human history, but it's also a bit of a picture of what Jesus did a lot of days. And it says here in Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went through the towns, villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let's stop there for a moment. Jesus, it says here, let's just examine this statement. He goes through the towns and the villages. That's the first thing. Secondly, he's teaching in their synagogues. And then next, he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom Next, he's healing disease and sickness. And then he looks up and he sees the crowds and he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we need to get into the perspective of Jesus to understand why his actions, his posture was the way that it was. We need to get into the perspective of Jesus to even understand how powerful his commands became. When Jesus walked the towns and the villages of his day, 2,000 years ago, Israel in the time of Jesus, 70% of the population was living in total poverty. 
So that means seven out of every 10 homes that Jesus walked by in the towns and the villages of his day, did, they lacked sufficient resources to thrive. They didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough education. They didn't have the, a, a, a home that was adequate to their needs. Seven out of 10 homes were in need of something to actually be able to thrive, and they lacked it. Poverty. Seven out of 10, that's a massive percentage of poverty in Jesus's day. He would have seen that and he would have felt that as he walked the streets of his day. Now it goes on from there and it says that he's teaching in their synagogues. Now you know that the synagogue of Jesus's day from any amount of New Testament reading was not exactly like the garden of today. Jesus didn't walk in the back and be like, worship is hot in the synagogue this morning. He, he didn't walk in the back and they're, they're talking about, you know, Darren's up rebuking the men on passivity and calling them into like, you know, really laying their lives down as men. That, that message wasn't happening in Jesus's day, right? Jesus didn't walk into the synagogue and there's an on fire youth group next door. Jesus didn't walk in the synagogue and be like, dang, the preacher is on fire this morning, right? Jesus walked in the synagogue and it was largely dead religion. It was made up laws on top of the Torah that by the hundreds that became a heavy yoke, a burden on the people. In many ways, the religious leaders were oppressing the majority of the followers of Judaism. That was the synagogue of his day. It was a little bit dead, a little bit religious, and, and quite striving under the burden of heavy, a heavy yoke yoke of works. That was the synagogue of his day. Then it says that he was healing disease and sickness. And we don't often think about this, but in order for Jesus to heal disease and sickness, he had to be around disease and sickness. And how many of you know Jesus in his day was not going into a nice intensive care unit that had a sterile environment, great doctors and nurses. He is walking streets that are aligned with people with incurable illnesses that have the aroma of incurable illnesses, have the pain and the sounds of incurable illnesses, and have the absolutely overwhelming sight of incurable illnesses. If you've been to the developing world at some point in your life, it's still the reality today. The busiest streets in a, in a poor city are going to be lined with people with chronic incurable illnesses because their only hope is to beg for a livelihood. It's the same in the time of Jesus. Now, the amazing thing is he's healing them. But I want you to imagine for a moment what that's like at in terms of an overwhelming perspective. For the disciples, walking those streets going, how could there be any hope here? Look at the overwhelming need around us. Imagine what Jesus saw as a human, as a man, what he felt, the emotion in his heart as he saw a place of people so in need, it would have been absolutely overwhelming. The next part of this says he saw the crowds now. He lifts his eyes. And he looks at the common person on their way to the market with their children, walking down the street, going from home to home, going through normal life at work. And his statement is that he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We know from lots of New Testament contexts that that harassed and helpless has a lot behind it. In Jesus's day, oppression is off the charts. 
The Roman government is oppressing most of the known world at that time. Uh, in, in, in culture, men are oppressing women. Adults are oppressing children. Uh, the poor are oppressed. The leaders of Judaism are oppressing the followers of Judaism. Racial tensions in Jesus' day are off the charts. Uh, the hatred between the Jews and the Romans, between the Gentiles and the Jews, between the Samaritans and the Jews, this race, these racial tensions are heated. They're painful. You read about them in the parables and in the stories of scripture. So when he says harassed and helpless, there is real pain, real brokenness, and real difficulty behind that. So now take that whole thing, 70% poverty, oppression at almost every level, racial tensions and divisions at almost every level, men oppressing women, adults, children, Take the sickness lining the streets, the lack of any kind of health care in Jesus' day. Take all of that in, harassed and helpless. And how, is astound, how astounding, how remarkable, this is the perspective shift, friends, is that Jesus looks at all of that. And I don't know about you, but when you really take that in, it's overwhelming. And then the hope of it, which would be the followers of the one true God, Yahweh is mostly dead religion, mostly made up laws, mostly living under a heavy yoke of the law. That's what Jesus sees as he walks those streets. And I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would have looked at that and declared what Jesus declared. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. Perspective is everything. Jesus reads the headlines of his day with darkness manifesting off the charts. And he looks at it and declares, oh, the pain, the brokenness, the poverty, the oppression, the division, the tension. Wow, the harvest is ripe. And he follows it up with, but pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. Why? Because it's never been a ripeness issue. It's always been a laborer issue. And if Jesus could look at the day, his day, the very nation that was actually about to crucify him as the son of God, if he could look at his nation in the midst of everything we just talked about and declare the harvest is ripe, what do you think he's saying over America today? What do you think he's saying over the Muslim world today? What do you think he's saying in the midst of racial difficulties and tensions today? What do you think he's saying in the middle of political divisions today? What do you think he's saying in the midst of a pandemic today? What do you think he's saying in the midst of poverty today? Jesus is not overwhelmed. Jesus sees a ripe harvest field. Jesus looks at what we call too hard and too dark, and he goes, those words don't exist in my vocabulary. Jesus doesn't look at what we see and get overwhelmed by it. He looks at it and goes, the, the greater the manifestation of evil is the greater the longing for a Messiah. Friends, we, again, we can come under the illusion that America is resistant to the gospel. Now I know, and scripture is clear, certainly there is an anti-Christ spirit and some truly are resistant to the gospel, but I promise you they are the minority. Jesus doesn't describe in this a people that are resistant to him. He describes in this a people that I believe is the majority of the people in America and on the earth today. They might be resistant to religion, but they're longing for a Messiah. They're longing for a Messiah. Don't confuse resistance to religion with resistance to the gospel. I think America today is very resistant to religion. I think America today is longing for a Messiah. 
And if we can find a political Messiah, we'll prop that up. If we can find a pastor Messiah, we'll prop him up. If we can find an economic Messiah, we'll prop them up. We're looking for Messiahs. The question is, are we giving them the real Messiah? There is an opportunity in our urgency to recognize that the harvest is ripe. And the question is not ripeness. The question is laborers who believe it. The question is, there are people who can get up in Long Beach in the morning, read the craziest headlines, and trump them with the scriptures. Is there a people who can wake up in Southern California and go, that's crazy around me. I can't believe what I saw today. I can't believe what I encountered today. And yet be more immersed in the scriptures than we are what we see with our eyes and bring hope into the crisis. Bring hope into the urgency around us. Jesus is not need to change something in order to create the ripeness. He needs to change us in order to see the ripeness. It's all around us. It's all around us. And Jesus had the eyes to see it. The next part of this that is so remarkable, and this is where we come into play. This is so important. As amazing as it was, I think, that Jesus looked at all the things I just described and went, this is a ripe harvest field. Maybe even more remarkable is in Matthew chapter 10, where he looks behind him and goes, and you guys, you 12, arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. Peter just wanted to call down fire on some dudes that didn't agree with us. You guys that got your mom involved in who's the greatest in the kingdom. Can you go any lower? (laughs) Tax collectors, young men with no education, failing fishermen. And he looks, not only is amazing, he goes, all this that you look at as hard and dark is actually a ripe harvest field. And you 12 that are so immature and so insecure And so arguing and so opinionated, he goes, you're the hope for this ripe harvest field. Perspective, friends. Perspective, because too often we're looking in the mirror and going, I'm disqualified. Not this, not that. Don't have position, don't have title, don't have the gifting, don't have the personality. I'm just filling in the blank. Too shy, too quiet, not bold, not courageous. Don't really share like that. I'm not really like that. I'm not like that guy. I'm not like this guy. No, no. Finish the conversation trying to convince yourself of why you are incapable of being Jesus to the lost. End the argument. End the argument. If Jesus could look at this and go ripe, we can look at that and declare ripe. And if Jesus could look at this and go, and you're the hope for the ripeness, then certainly you can look in the mirror and go, there is hope in my simple obedience for the ripeness of the harvest field that's in front of me. No one in this room is disqualified. Friends, this is a full participation sport. There are no bleachers in Christianity. There are no sidelines. We are all in the game. Everyone qualified. You know, you're 16, great. You're super qualified. You're only gonna follow Jesus for a year? That's a year too long to not think you're qualified. Oh, I've only read through the Bible once. Great, so many people in the world have never even had a Bible and they might be doing more than we're doing, right? Don't limit yourself for what God can do through simple obedience, extravagant love. And the last thing that I think is so profound about this at a perspective level is that Jesus looks out at this broken world, declares ripe harvest field, says, you 12, you're the answer. Would you go? I'm asking you to go to the nations. Go now. And they do in Matthew chapter 10. Is that number three is that Jesus looks at all of that and he doesn't just robotically move into it and go, this is how the kingdom works. Let's, 
you know, advance the gospel. He is moved with compassion. And this moved with compassion might be the greatest key, I feel, in the hour that we're in right now. Because it is very easy to get angry at times that the lost would be lost and act lost. How can they act like a man they've never met? How can they experience a freedom they've never encountered? How could they live in a love they've never encountered? And sometimes we get frustrated, read a headline, hear another report, see someone go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do next? And it seems the older you get, maybe we're prone to doing that the next generation. Gen Z, what are they going to think of next? Millennials. All these statements that maybe we've made at different times and we're in those generations and we can get frustrated. Jesus moves in compassion. And the key to this for me is that Jesus moved in a unique love that has marked the greatest movements in human history. And here's how I define this love as we wrap up this morning. Is Jesus looked down at a world with a whole bunch of pain that he had nothing to do with. He's the only one who had nothing to do with it. He's the only one that could look at sin and go, I had nothing to do with this sin. He's the only one that can look at sickness and go, this is not of me. I didn't cause it. He's the only one who can look at oppression and go, there's none in here. He's the only one that can look at division and go, I, I know no, this is all the enemy's work. There is no division in here. Jesus looked down at a brokenness, a sin, a sickness, a lostness, a torment, an oppression, all of it. He looked at all of it and yet he had not caused any of it. Any of it. He had nothing to do with any of it. And this is what's remarkable is that Jesus looked at it and goes, I, I, this is not my responsibility. I didn't cause this. I'm not the inception of this. I wasn't the genesis of this. None of this is inside of me. But I will fully take responsibility for it. We have defined maturity today, and we've got, man, if you're a parent, you get this. I get this. I'm a parent. Your goal in life is just to get your kids to take responsibility for their own actions, is it not? You're the greatest parent on earth in that moment. My kid made a mess and cleaned it up. And you're just like, who's a good dad? I'm a good dad. I am a good dad, right? And we spend our whole lives trying to get our kids to take responsibility for their actions, right? And we go, that's maturity. I want to suggest to you today that is the low bar and that is entry level maturity. That the real maturity that Jesus is looking for is when we will take responsibility for a mess we didn't cause. And that's what Jesus moved in, adoptive love where he can look at a world and go, I didn't cause it, but I will take responsibility for it. It's like a father that can look at a young child, maybe in the foster care system with no parents, uh, terminated rights. They're they're literally a a child of the state. And that child has a hard background and maybe he's been through a lot in life. And to look at that child and go, I'm not the reason you don't have a dad, but I will become the reason from this day forward that you have a dad the rest of your life. I may not be the cause of your brokenness, but I will become the cause of your healing. I'm not the reason that there was abuse in your history. I'm not the reason there was drugs in your history, but I will become the reason there's wholeness in your future. It's adoptive love that can look at the brokenness of society, the brokenness of a life, the brokenness of a community, the brokenness of a family or an individual, and go, I may not have caused this, but I will take responsibility for it. Friends, this is Christianity. This is the compassion that Jesus was moved in. The harvest is ripe in this broken setting. 
These broken dudes that I'm working on, they're the solution. But at the core of it was gutty love. At the core of it was this, this deep moving in the seat of his affection. It's like there was a throne in Jesus' heart. This word compassion means there was a throne. And on that throne was love and compassion. And he looked at the broken world and he goes, I didn't cause an ounce of this, but I will fully take responsibility for it. And friends, this is the perspective shift that I believe that we're in right now that leads to the greatest hour in Great Commission history. What if the next generation would have the term unreached erased from their vocabulary because it didn't exist any longer? Why not, friends? Why not? 2,000 years of salvation history. Don't you think it's time that we end the term unreached? What if the next generation, we could hand to them and go, there's not a single language on earth that doesn't have the Bible in human history uh, on the earth? Why not? After 2,000 years of gospel history, don't you think it's time that a generation wakes up in the morning and goes, my gosh, every language on earth has the good news. Every people group on earth has worshipers, right? When we talk about bringing heaven to earth, we often think about someone getting out of a wheelchair. I love that. I love the miraculous. How do you know heaven really invades earth when every tribe, tongue, and nation is worshiping before the throne? Not just in eternity, but now so that it can happen in eternity. This is the perspective shift that changes our posture from one of safe Christianity to one of obedient Christianity, right? From one of bored Christianity to one of what a privilege to be alive Christianity. What an hour to live in. I wouldn't want to be alive in any other hour. The crazier it is, the, br the, lighter, the brighter the light is going to shine. This is the hour that we're alive. This is our watch. This is our time to let perspective change our posture out of fear, out of anxiety, out of worry, out of blaming others, out of opinionating, out of all that's going on around us. No, we change our posture to what? Adoptive love, adoptive love. Where in Long Beach has no one taken responsibility? Another school shooting happens and man, what do we do? We find someone to blame, a political party, a leader. We find someone to blame. Nine out of every single 10 kids who has initiated a school shooting didn't have a dad. 90%. What if we took responsibility? Said, I may not have caused the school shooting, but I will fully take responsibility for it. I may not be the reason those nine kids don't have a dad, but I will become the reason that they do have a dad. What if we took responsibility for the nations of the earth? What if we took responsibility for the places in America that are still waiting for a breakthrough? What if we rose up with that compassion, with this perspective of a ripe harvest field, looked ourselves in the mirror and go, I may not be all that, but I am filled with the spirit of God. I am full of hope and I have compassion in my heart. And I'm telling you the most dangerous thing in the world is a believer with compassion, with obedience, willing to take a risk and go anywhere for the sake of the gospel is the most dangerous. And when you put that believer with a whole bunch of other believers and all of a sudden you have a couple hundred people that are waking up in the morning going, the harvest is ripe in my workplace. The harvest is ripe in my neighborhood. The harvest is ripe in Gen Z. The harvest is ripe in the Himalayas. The harvest is ripe in India. The harvest is ripe in Saudi Arabia. And those same people wake up and look in the mirror and brush their teeth and got crazy hair and imitate 
immaturities and insecurities, but go, my gosh, God can use me. And those same people walk out of that door and go, maturity is not me just taking care of my life and making it nice and safe and clean. Maturity is where is the brokenness around me because I'm about to take responsibility for it. And I'm telling you, in history, we call it revival and reformation. In history, we look back and we label it great awakening. Friends, let's have a great awakening today. Let's have one in our hour. Would you guys stand with me? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.